and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a very good afternoon in Amsterdam, where we're joined by,、uh, for the first time on the show, Andrea Costa, who is the executive director and co-founder of the Elephant Action League, as well as a project leader and founder at Wild Leaks. And a member of the supervisory board at the Wildlife Justice Commission. A very good afternoon to you, Andrea, and welcome to the show. Good afternoon. The reason why we have、uh, invited Andrea to join us today on the show is in part because we want to do a little bit of a year-end retrospective of the ivory issue, and it's been for anybody who's listened to this show one of the themes of China-Africa relations. It is among the most sensitive issues in the China-Africa relationship on all sides. In fact, very little. In the Sino-African dialogue or engagement, gets that much attention outside of both Africa and China than Ivory. Certainly in the West, this is a key issue. And this year alone, it's been a very dramatic year. So let me just kind of tick off a few of the highlights, and then we're going to kind of come to Andrea to get his take on all this because he's actually in the trenches. On elephant and ivory conservation. So let's first kind of go back to January or February. I can't really remember when it was, Kobus. When、uh, Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang, who always makes the first overseas trip to Africa of the year for the Chinese、uh, before they go to any other country, they do a stop in Africa. And on this trip in the first quarter of this year. Ali Kachang announced a $10 million donation to the United Nations Environmental Program, specifically at wildlife conservation in Kenya, which had a lot to do with ivory. That was an encouraging sign. Then let's fast forward into the third quarter of this year, when the administration of Xi Jinping announced,、uh, really to some, a lot of people's surprise,、uh, a ban on the domestic trade. Of ivory. Now, this was a plan that they were going to announce, and they said the details will follow. So the policy has not been implemented, and a lot of us expected the details to come out in the FOCAC summit, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that just concluded、uh, in December in Johannesburg, where there was a lot of anticipation that wildlife would be a major part of the communique. We heard、uh, rumors, in fact, that、uh, the ivory ban was going to be announced. There was going to be a major policy shift. Uh, at the end of the day,、uh, we didn't see much more beyond the headline of the $60 billion、uh, aid package that,、uh, and financial package that China unveiled at that summit. So, Andrea, a lot of people walked away from FOCAC very, very pleased. Certainly, Africans, for their part, were very, very happy. $60 billion is a lot of money. The Chinese seem to have gotten the headlines that they wanted from FOCAC, and I guess I'm curious. For you and your brethren in the wildlife and the conservation movement, when you look back at what came out of FOCAC, were you pleased? <clears throat> well, not necessarily. As you said,、uh, nothing has been said much、uh, or at all about、uh, the issue of elephant poaching and ivory trafficking. But I was personally, at least, I was not surprised at all. I was not expecting FOCAC to be. The venue for this kind of discussion and announcement.、Um, I think there were. Sadly, but、uh, but but you know, truthfully,、uh, elephant poaching and ivory trafficking is not among the let's say the top priorities in Africa from an African perspective and from a Chinese perspective. So maybe from a Western perspective, but not from Africa and China. So it's not surprising that they didn't touch this topic.、Um, on the top of that, uh, uh, you know, we just concluded an year-long、uh, 
investigation in China on ivory trafficking and the report will be published in, uh, in two weeks. So here, if you want, I can give you today a few anticipations. But um, during this investigation, we met a lot of traffickers and traders. And uh, one of the last uh, um, ivory carvers that we met in Fuzhou, um, uh, what was really surprising conversation with this guy, because uh, for the first time, he said, listen, we are going to have a, a, in a few weeks a meeting of all the ivory traders in China. That's already in itself was really surprising. Some of us have a lot of doubts about the future. Uh, from business perspective, it's, it's, more, it's, it's more and more difficult with, you know, dealing with ivory. Um, so we are trying to understand what are the next steps, but we don't know what are the next steps, and the government doesn't know what is the next step. So this is one of the other reasons why probably they couldn't announce anything at FOCAC. And this guy told us that basically they are, for the first time, some of the traders are discussing internally in China for a, a buyback uh, from the Chinese government. Because don't let's not forget that the, these people, uh, well, some of them, they have been importing illegal ivory for years, but some of them, they have been buying legal ivory from the Chinese government every year. So if they announce a ban tomorrow, uh, the government has to find a way to buy back uh, all the ivory that, that he has been selling to these guys for the past years. And what makes more complex the whole thing is that this guy told us, you know what, the real issue is that many of us, the traders and carvers, uh, have much more illegal ivory than legal. So in any kind of deal with the government that tries to ban the legal market, we'll lose a lot of money. Because best case scenario, the government will buy all the legal stock that we basically acquire from the government. But what about the millions of dollars invested in the illegal stocks that, in my opinion, at the moment are stock in some uh, secret location uh, in China and they're kept very separate from the legal stock. So that's just a, a, a little example of uh, the complexity behind uh, a domestic legal ban, which is for sure, you know, if it's if implemented, it will help a lot. But it's not as easy as it sounds. The implementation internally. Um, Andrea, recently there's there's been uh, you know several reports that the, the domestic price of ivory in, in China has fallen by 50%. And, you know, some there's been quite optimistic kind of reports about it in Western media saying, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is the first good news for elephants in a while, and it indicates a fall in demand among Chinese and especially younger Chinese people due to a slowdown in the economy, but also due to all of this, these anti-ivory campaigns that have been run by Chinese celebrities. Is that how you see the, the situation? Is the price really falling? And, and do, you, do you see it actually correlating to a uh, lessening in demand? Yeah, about this, uh, they, um, the, the authors of this uh, report did not uh, publish the report yet. Uh, so it will be published at the beginning of 16. Uh, so it, all we have is a press release uh, about what they found. And they vaguely talking about uh, the value of illegal raw ivory. So first of all, it, it's... You, we, we have to understand how they got information about illegal raw ivory. Um, it makes sense. I don't know if it's, if it's that dramatic because we, in our investigation, we found other numbers. But there is a decrease, uh, especially in raw ivory, because again, from a business point of view, many traders and carvers are seeing, I mean, are having more and more difficulties in in importing raw ivory. 
uh, illegal ivory, of course. So the, it makes sense that the price of illegal ivory um, it, is going down. But I, I'll be curious to know about the, what they found about the price of legal raw ivory. We, we have still many, many tons in China uh, of legal raw ivory ready to be carved, ready to be, uh, you know, um, worked. Um, at the retail level, is it correct that the price, I mean, is it not a thriving market? We did a, an invest, you know, a survey both in Hong Kong and mainland China and on both places. Uh, we found these retailers having difficulties in basically in selling as they used to sell. Uh, but it is, I think it, it, there's a, what is happening is a, under stress, the whole industry is under a sort of consolidation with small players or old players kind of suffering and getting out of business while uh, some main players are still able not only to profit from ivory because they're, they're, uh, you know there are still uh, buyers and collectors and investors even um, and they have in their hands a lot of legal ivory that can be easily carved so that we, again we have conflicting information about what is really happening behind the scenes in China uh, yes some of the prices going down raw ivory illegal but uh, the prices for carved ivory you know especially carved by uh, carver masters uh, they're actually increasing as a future investment regardless the ban um, we have been told that they there are private investors uh, that are basically stocking uh, ivory on a side, nobody knows where, for the future. So they are still betting on some kind of profits in the future, even after a ban. Um, so again, there are many question marks um, that uh, that need to be answered. I'm curious to kind of pick up on this research that you did in Fuzhou and trying to understand some of the mechanics of the Chinese policy process. Now, I think we should put a disclaimer out there. I don't pretend to ask you a question that I think you will actually give me a truthful answer in the sense that you have no idea what happens in the Chinese policy process, in part because nobody really does. They're very, exactly. It's a very opaque process. Okay, so with that yeah. disclaimer out there, give me your best guess as to what you think is happening behind the scenes. And the reason I ask this is because a lot of people are very impatient with the Chinese, and they there is this perception that this is a an authoritarian government, a communist government, that if the government just wants to do something, it does it. And they don't really understand that there are constituencies, there are stakeholders, there are interest groups, there are vested interests. All the same types of things that are in governments everywhere in the world are also in play in China. So when it comes to the ivory issue, who are the stakeholders that you can kind of identify that you think that the government is trying to kind of work with right now so as to implement this policy with the least amount of disruption as possible, which will ultimately, in their view, make it more effective? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I totally agree with you. Uh, it, here in the West, we constantly oversimplify uh, China and we constantly oversimplify what is happening in China. And especially during the last uh, couple of years where, you know, when I've been working uh, on this issue quite a bit in China and I was there several times, I got a lot of respect, actually, a lot of understanding. You know, China is a very, very complex country with humongous uh, problems, uh, the, the scale that here in the West we cannot even imagine. So, um, you know, I encourage everyone to, to think twice before saying something um, simple about China. Uh, and I actually touch with my own hands what they are doing in terms of law enforcement. So uh, many of the traders that we met 
they were really cagey. You know, for the first time in history, I think, of investigation of this kind, they were really scared by law enforcement. They were really talking about, no, no, it's dangerous to do this kind of stuff. We can get in trouble now. So something has been done behind the scenes. Uh, the Chinese government did crack down on, on some of them. They have been arresting a lot of people behind the scenes. Um, uh, and that's why, for example, right now I'm, I'm, I'm putting more responsibility on the African side than on the China side. In my opinion, right now, China is doing more than African side, than African countries, and I know already that by saying that I will get a lot of enemies. Oh, you are the, definitely an enemy. <laughs> but that's I'm, 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 I'm known I'm known to be. Uh, I think it's uh, great. You know, blunt and uh, and truthful. My my job is to is to is to say the truth for you know for for the, on behalf of of of, uh, of other stakeholders, not only the elephants but also people who risk their life for protecting wildlife in general. So it's important to say the truth. Right now, China is doing more than than Africa in general. Kobus, this is a point uh, that you've actually brought up on several occasions, which is the corruption within, say, in South Africa, within the government the lack of law enforcement to protect wildlife, the sentences that are handed down by the courts in Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, and South Africa oftentimes are weak, and even corruption at the most senior levels of the ruling family leaderships throughout East Africa are implicated in this trade. So there is a lot of responsibility also in Africa. Kobus, what's your thought? Yes, I mean, you know, kind of the, there's a, the, you know, as as with China, Africa is very complicated, and of course, country to country, the situation is different. I also think that, especially in relation to Ivory, the, the situation is quite different. For example, between South Africa and Kenya, um, where, to my mind, um, you know, there seems to be a more kind of unified message or more a feeling that both the government and the people are on the same page and pulling in the direction of of more of protecting ivory on the Kenyan side rather than the South African side, where, as with many other issues in South Africa, it, it tends to fall fall along kind of race and class lines. Um, and there's actually not really a unified, uh, you know, kind of push in the direction of, of, of greater, uh, you know, greater kind of uh, protection for elephants in South Africa as there is in Kenya. Um, but Andrea, I'm not actually sure if you agree with that. You know, kind of this is my perspective from looking at, at media. Um, and you know, my, my research has been focusing a lot on on how how especially social media works in you know kind of in this China Africa you know poaching issue. Um, how do you see it as someone who's actually spent more time on the ground dealing with these issues in Africa? Uh, from a social media, you mean point of view? Well, no, from from the actually a non-media point of view, from actually dealing with the with the real with the real enforcement oh, of the issue in oh, Africa. Oh. Like, where yeah, where do you yeah, see the weaknesses lying? Well, for example, I, I, one of the weaknesses I see, it sounds uh, strange, is in all these tens of millions of dollars given to African countries for conservation. You don't need tens of millions of dollars to protect wildlife in Africa. You need transparency. You need accountability. You need a genuine fight against corruption. You get good training, but you don't need billions of dollars. And, and there is this tendency by, uh, you know, at, at, at all sides, you know, from China, from Africa, from the EU, from the US, try to solve the problem with a mountain of money. And I, I just don't enter, in, you know, in the topic where exactly this money is going to. Okay, let's not enter this huge, uh, let's not open that door. But um, 
I talk to many people on the ground, uh, even really informed people who have been fighting, poaching and trafficking for, for, for all their life. And pretty much they tell me the same thing. You don't need all these millions of money to, to do the things that needed to be done. Uh, but the governments love, of course, African loves to receive money. The others go to give money because it's, you know, $10 million check for China or for the European Union is nothing. It's really big on the media. It's really big on Africa. But it's nothing in terms of, you know, the investment is peanuts for them. But how are you going to use this money? I mean, they think that this problem will be solved with drones and cars and, and machine guns and, uh, and I don't know what, but it's wrong. From, I can tell you from the field, this is profoundly wrong. Well, let's pick up on the race issue because I think this is an important aspect of this story that a lot of people may not feel comfortable talking about, but we'll just, what the hell, we'll go right in into it. Um, the Elephant Action League is an American-based organization. Um, it, you know, you yourself, I'm presuming, are white. Uh, most of the members of the Elephant Action League are white. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that the conversations I have in, uh, across the continent is that a lot of the perception from many Africans is that whites care more about the animals than the people. And they will donate money because it's a way to relieve guilt. It's a way to kind of be involved. It's a little bit of slacktivism, as Evgeny Morozov would have said. Uh, it's an easy thing on yeah. Facebook to say like and to give $10 to the Elephant Action League and to feel like I'm doing something, uh, you know, um, yeah. And I guess one yeah. of the issues yeah. is is what what role, what are the difficulties of race in this discussion? Because I find that on our Facebook page and, I, and on social media, most of the most vocal activists uh, for the elephants uh, are white, are in the United States and in Europe. They're usually not from the continent. They tend to be, and I'm, I'm not disparaging here because I, I don't want to undermine people's passion and commitment to the issue. I, I really don't mean to trivialize it in any way. Where my frustration comes in with them is the simple narratives with which they adopt. China is bad, Africa is a victim, and why can't something just happen tomorrow? And so I guess I'm curious for someone like you who's in the middle of this relationship, between being on the ground in China, engaged in wildlife conservation in Africa, but yet your main stakeholders are whites in the West. How does this, how do you balance all of those? It, it, it's true. I, I cannot uh, say it's not true, um, but I can tell you this. First of all, the most important uh, assets that we have as an organization, Elephant actually, most important assets and collaborators are black Africans, or Asians. We simply don't publicize these people because, you know, very simply put, it's quite dangerous to work with us uh, because we go into the field and we, and we try to see what is wrong and then we report what is wrong regardless of what the government says. So to work, to work with us uh, as, a, as an African, being based in African, it's, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to do it without risking their life uh, unless you do it uh, uh, anonymously. I mean, anonymously means that sometimes we don't actually don't know, even know what the, what the, who are the people who are giving our information. But let's say the closest collaboration, I'm talking about about 10 people between Africa and Asia that, that we have, 
are our greatest assets, we simply cannot mention their names because it's it's simply too dangerous to report this kind of stuff when you live in those countries. Um, the fact that we're based in the U.S. is simply because over there, the whole charity movement is more developed, so it's easier to get the attention of, uh, of major donors and even the governments to help you. So it's, it's simply because uh, um, the whole thing is more developed. And, and and it's more difficult to do it uh, uh, in Africa. It, from our perspective, even more difficult because, because we do investigation and intelligence gathering in those countries around the world, we cannot be based in those countries. Uh, you know, having an office or a staff over there will be immediately a liability for us and for, and for the, our capacity to speak the truth. So that's a, a reason, at least for us, because we are based not there. Then I agree with you, on social media, you hear all kind of crap. And uh, I think that probably 1% of the people, maybe less, that is that actually know what they're talking about. All the others are simply, uh, I don't know, um, they're probably so emotional, so passionate about this issue that, um, that of course, get into this you know, rambling and, and they're just talking nonsense and we heard all kind of stuff let's send the military let's kill them all um you know as elephant action league we are the, we were the first two years ago then other people kind of copy but two years ago we were the first to launch a campaign on the human toll of the ivory trade and wildlife trafficking because we thought that the human component was extremely important and I'm not talking only about rangers getting killed. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of poachers getting killed in Africa every year. And this is a number that you will not find anywhere because governments do not publish the number. So we are talking about thousands and thousands of, 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 uh, of uh, orphans and widows. I'm talking about money, uh, lo- money laundering, tourism, militia. So the human toll is very big. For us, at least, the human component is very important. Uh, the fact that uh, uh, you know it, some people uh, cares more about animals than than people, yes, yeah, some people I think they do. It's sad, but I, personally, I, I also, have, personally speaking, I also have a charity in Thailand who takes care of Thai and Asian uh, uh, children. So for me, I cannot say something like that. But uh, at the end of the day, probably is about putting your passion. Pension you are you are born with towards the right direction and and try to help. Then I agree with you that many people uh, help in the wrong way. I also you know from 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 my side it's I was surprised because you know my own work also I focus a lot on this overlap between race and 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 the discourse of of conservation. You know, just just for my own kind of wider research. Um, because, you know, a lot of my work looks at how China is thought of and understood in the world, and this is a very interesting example of that. Um, but in dealing with my students, I found that it actually, that that um, the stereotype that, that it's only kind of middle, middle-aged middle white people who are, who are kind of passionate about this stuff is actually breaking down. Um, a lot of young black students are really angry and impa- impassioned about this to an extent that I was actually surprised by it. Um, you know, kind of, and, and I think they they are young young Africans are actually a, a constituency that's actually pushing this issue into into much higher prominence um, in the China Africa dialogue. Um, and, and young Chinese are as well, by the way, Kobus. You bring up a very interesting yeah, point on the gen- this generational issue transcends. 
uh, you know, nationality in many respects, because we've seen a social media movement in China, which has turned against Ivory as being cool. There are, you know, uh, marches in the streets of Hong Kong now to force LegCo there to, 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 to ban Ivory. So it seems like it's not just in Africa. Absolutely not. Uh, you should see our Facebook page. We have lots and lots of uh, young uh, Africans following us. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, Andrea, in, in terms of, of strengthening the, as, as you said, Africa doesn't need you know a ton of money to to help protect elephants and so on. What what do they actually need? How can the the African situation be improved? Well, first of all, you need real. Uh, uh, accountability and a genuine fight against corruption. I mean, I know it's, it's now I'm oversimplifying. I, I, I'm aware of that. Uh, you don't get rid of corruption in Africa or anywhere else, you know, just by saying or by organizing report, uh, you know, convention and, and writing reports. But in, in Africa, at least, you should at, at least focus on some islands where it's very important to fight corruption. I, I name a few, for example, it, Countries like Kenya and Tanzania, where corruption is endemic at all levels, from the bottom to the to the top, you should at least uh, create a corruption-free island around the port and the airports, for example. And this already will improve the situation a lot. If you can at least control those choke points, airports and and, and seaports, uh, you will do already a lot in the fight against against trafficking, and not just ivory trafficking or wildlife product trafficking. I'm talking about drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, human trafficking. So, you know, those ports and seaports are vitals for any kind of traffickers to do their business. So if you, can, if you cannot get rid of, of corruption in the whole country, I agree it's impossible. At least do some specific projects around those, those points. Because, and that's why you this is where you understand that you don't need uh, an army of 10,000 people to go into the bush uh, and, and fight poachers. Because actually, in the in the bush and in the cities and around ports, you need intelligence. You, you need intelligence agents to fight this, not uh, all the time boots on the ground and fighting left and right. Of course, you need also boots on the ground because... The, protect, the immediate protection of elephants or, or rhinos need to be done in the bush. But on the trafficking side, you need intelligence, you need smart people, you need to create an interagency task force, like the one that has been created long ago to fight Al Capone in the US, with the best elements of different uh, law enforcement authorities reporting directly to the president with full powers. This is how you fight back. Well, not with millions of dollars. And let me just add one other point. I, you know, this is my two cents. I'm not sure if you agree, but you know, the other key piece of this is the legal system. The courts, up until this year, and again, it's another milestone this year, um, have been, you know, in in Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, have been, you know, placid to say the least. I mean, they've just handed down pathetic sentences. This year, we started to see yeah. the courts hand down some much stiffer sentences, and in fact. The Ivory Queen, who I think she's in Tanzania or is she in Uganda? The Ivory yeah, Tanzania. Tanzania. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's yeah. she's going before. You know, she was she's been doing running an ivory racket allegedly for the past fifteen years or something like that. And you know, they're they're dangling a very heavy sentence in front of her. And prior to that, we've now started to see some five and ten year sentences come down. Whether they serve it is a different story. But this seems to be a sea change as well. You know, I live in Vietnam in a country that if you traffic a very small amount of drugs, 
uh, there's a bullet into the back of your head. Now, please, I'm not suggesting that that's the way to do it, but the point is that they have extraordinarily stiff laws in Southeast Asia, throughout Southeast Asia, for drug trafficking, because they consider drug trafficking to be a threat to their national security. They think it will undermine you know, their healthcare system, their legal system, their morality, all these other things. If only East Africa you know, would see the threat to their economy and to their national tradition by, with these elephants disappearing, then there might be more pressure on the legal system to hand down stiffer sentences. I'm not advocating that they follow Southeast well, Asia's actually, example, but uh, go ahead, Kobus. Yeah, well, actually, now that you say that, there has in the last year, I've seen that in some cases, ivory traffickers in Tanzania have been charged with, under charge of economic sabotage. Um, yeah, you know, kind of which was interesting for me, you know, kind of it seemed like an interesting shift. Yeah, that was the, for example, this is exactly the case of the of the person arrested after the Ivory Queen, uh, the so-called Shatani, the devil, the devil. And uh, and he has been charged uh, also for economic, uh, um, you know, active, you know, economic, uh, as you said, uh, base. Uh, and and it's done when they when an enlightened judge understands that the wildlife trafficking laws that they have are not enough. It's, they're not harsh enough. And uh, and uh, and so it's it's a great uh, step uh, towards the right direction. I don't know if it's the fruit of uh, international social pressure uh, or uh, or um, you know a shift in the local policies. I really don't know. I know that it's a good sign. Uh, in some other countries, like Gabon, for example, uh, you know that they, they, you know, it's regarded as one of the example. Well, it's an example where you still get a slap on the wrist if you if they get you with ivory and stuff like that. So, uh, still a lot to be done. But don't be fooled. And you mentioned uh, Eric drug trafficking, and and it's a very interesting uh, comparison because don't be fooled because look at how harsh these laws against drug trafficking are. All over the places, you know, best case scenario, you go to jail for, for life. Worst case scenario, you get executed. And still, you have scores and scores of people ready to risk it all to make money. So don't be fooled. And don't those people in Africa, they don't have to. It's just a part of the equation. Don't think that with, with the new law or with handing over a harsher sentence, you will solve the issue. Because the drug trafficking is a clear example when you have the harshest possible sentence and still you have thousands of people ready to risk their life. I think the message that we're getting from you today is this is an incredibly complex issue on all sides. On the Chinese side, it's complicated. On the African side, it's complicated. On the activist side, it's complicated. And people tend to oversimplify it. Uh, to their peril in that respect. Uh, listen, this has exactly. been a very dramatic year in 2015. Kobus and I have been following the story for at least five years, and we've not seen as much activity, uh, progress in many respects, as we have right. in 2015. Right. I want you to kind of take a look into the, you know, the crystal ball for 2016. Give us some of your predictions of what you think is going to happen uh, this coming year in, in the ivory the ivory trade and the, and the politics of ivory between China and Africa. Um, I think it, it's a it's a turning point year. I mean, it's it's the year where you know we 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 gain it or lose it. Uh, it's we have the opportunity and also the right political uh, you know the right political environment across many countries to uh, gently uh, push China uh, towards a total ban of the legal market, which 
represent still now the single most important factor behind uh, illegal uh, trafficking and elephant poaching. So let's not uh, forget that, you know, above all, the legal market is still acting as a sort of a vacuum cleaner, gigantic vacuum cleaner, you know, sucking up ivory from all over the places. But I think regarding ivory, it would be uh, an historical year. That's that's our hopes. And, you know, it's also some, you know, vibes and energy you get from the ground when you are there and you can get this energy only there. Um, I, I think um, it's, it, they will, I hopefully, they will announce a total or near total ban of the legal ivory tra uh, trade in China. Uh, they will find a way to deal with all the traders, you know, to, you know, to, uh, they have to pay back some money. They have to protect some jobs. We are all we are all there to uh, here to help. By the way, it will cost certainly less than what we are putting now to to try to protect elephants. Um, my only concern is that uh, uh, wildlife trafficking uh, trafficking of other wildlife products, uh, for example, rhino, is is still thriving, including China, including Vietnam, including some other uh, countries. So uh, let's not uh, you know. Let's stay in guard. So what will happen with other wildlife products like rhino horn? Will these other products receive less attention by the Chinese authorities? And will traders shift or invest more into other, uh, you know, lucrative products? So let's, let's, uh, we are all positive. We are all waiting for good news, but but there's still a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. Andrea Costa is the executive director and co-founder of the Elephant Action League. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Anytime. And if people want to follow what you are doing and to become engaged and active in the elephant conservation movement, what's the best way for them to, to engage with the Elephant Action League? Exactly. Or oh, don't forget our very successful project, Wild Leaks, the first uh, um, whistleblowing initiative for wildlife and forest crimes. We receive uh, anonymous information from all over the places, including Asia, on wildlife crimes. And, and uh, we use this information to launch investigation or to share with law enforcement and media. So it's, uh, this is a great way to, to help us. Wild, and that's at Wild Leaks. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-A-K-S dot O-R-G. And for the Elephant Action League, what should people do to get connected? Elephantleague.org or uh, uh, Facebook uh, slash um, Elephant League. So it's, uh, it's, there's many ways they can uh, help us, including spreading the word, including... Uh, including, of course, uh, um, you know, helping with our investigations. Fantastic. And Kobus, if people want to get in contact with you and to follow what we're doing at the China Africa Project, what's the best way for them? Um, I'm on our Facebook page on a daily basis. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And we curate this 24-hour stream of, of constantly updating China Africa news items. I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. -E. And if that Twitter feed 24 hours a day is a little bit too much for you, we also have a newsletter that goes out every Monday with about five or six of the top China Africa stories. It's a great way to stay on top of uh, what the Elephant Action League is doing, all the latest of diplomacy in, in ivory, but also everything to do with the China Africa relationship. Relationship. Uh, just go to our website at uh, ChinaAfricaProject.com. You'll see signups there, or you can sign up on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash China 
Africa project. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, best way to do it, go over to iTunes, type in China Africa, or you can follow it on our website. We're also on the Asia Society's China File site. And for faithful readers of the Huffington Post, we're very, very happy to be a partner with them as well. And you can find us in HuffPo World. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.